we're so glad you're here today. I'm Roxanne. Um, we do have a couple announcements for you. Let's see. Okay. Uh, Spring Showcase. It's going to be on Saturday, April 6th. There are two times to come. You can come at 2.30 or 6.30, and there's an art sale at 5.30, and it uh, goes to support student ministry, so that's exciting. Um, and you can buy tickets online or from a student that is attending Sikkim. Okay, yes. How to have less terrible political conversations. It's going to start next week here at 9.30 in this building, and I think we could all probably use a little you know, help with that, so, yeah, so that's next week, and that's all the announcements, I think, that we have, so I'm going to go ahead and pray for the offering, and then Leslie's going to come up and talk, so, okay, so I'm going to pray real quick, and then Leslie will come up, okay, um, dear God, thank you so much for this day, and for bringing us all here, and ask that you would open our hearts to hear whatever you want us to hear today, and that we'll be able to carry it into our weeks, and we love you so much, in Jesus' name. Oh, and then I'm going to pass um, the offering here, and it's going to go this way, and then this way. All right. Good morning. I'm always amazed how when I get here, I'm like, oh, there's not going to be very many people here today. They must have read the schedule. They must know I'm going to preach. And then I look up and I'm like, wow, there's more people here than I thought there were. So I'm glad you guys are here this morning. Um, and I'm glad to be here with you this morning. I missed you last week when I was gone. I want to start this morning by asking you a question. If I said, I promise you that by the end of the day Monday, you will have a million dollars in your bank account. Would you be excited? How many of you say yes? Okay, why would you be excited, somebody? Financial security, it's a million dollars. Okay, those of, how many of you would not be excited? Okay, why not, Melissa? I'd be skeptical. Melissa would be skeptical. Who else? Why would you not be excited, Shayla? <laughs> yeah, so let me tell you the answer to that question is you should not be excited. And the reason you should not be excited is because it is impossible for me to keep that promise. There is no way I could put a million dollars in anyone's bank account because I don't have a million dollars in my own bank account nor do I have access to a million dollars. And if I promised you that, and I can't fulfill that promise, that would make me what? A liar, a liar. exactly. Keep making a promise means nothing. Do you hear me? Making a promise means nothing. Keeping a promise means everything. And a promise is only as good as the promise maker. And God makes some amazing promises in the Bible. And we're going to start out in Romans, well, we're not going to start out, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8 today. And one of the things I love about Romans chapter 8 is it has a lot of really good promises in it. And it starts out with a bang, and it says, therefore... There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Boom. It starts out big. 
And why is there no condemnation? For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set us free from the law of sin and death. That is a pretty great promise. And there's a lot of them throughout Romans chapter 8, but I'm going to concentrate on Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 39, just because it would take a long time to go through all of Romans chapter 8 and look at the promises there. So one of the things I want to say before I read that is that I have a Bible. I just want you to know that. Um, My Bible could probably hurt someone because it's ginormous, because number one, it's big print, and number two, it is NIV and message side by side. So it's, I mean, probably about this thick. And I have not mastered the art of having my Bible and having my notes and having this that my Bible brings it way down here. I just can't do all of it together. And so I always go to Bible Gateway and copy off a Bible Gateway and then put it in my notes. But every time Brad gets up and he has his Bible in his hand and he's going reading from his Bible, I'm like, gosh, I wish I could do that. And I'm like, they probably think I don't even own a Bible because I never have it with me. But I want to assure you that I do. And I want to assure you that I am reading from the Bible, just not the printed Bible. So here we go, Romans 8, 26 through 39. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And I should say before I start reading this that I'm reading from the NIV. I know that Brad told us to read uh, Romans in the message, that it would be a little easier for us to understand. But Romans chapter 8 is literally one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, and I have read it most often in the NIV And I'm more comfortable with it in the NIV, so that's why I'm reading from that this morning. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things... God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is with the right hand of God and is always interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. 
No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those are some awesome promises, and the Bible is full of them. In that little chunk right there, what are some of the promises that you see listed? What else? That's right. He works for the good of those who love him. Any others you see in there? It also promises the same thing about Christ, that Christ is sitting at the right hand of God interceding for us. And that's pretty cool. See, there are a lot of promises here, and we're going to come back to those in just a minute. Something else that runs on some pretty amazing promises are political campaigns. And so we're going to look at a few of those promises as well. So I'm going to start going way back um, to the early 1900s, and Herbert Hoover's campaign promise was a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. And that may sound a little funny, but basically that's a promise of prosperity. I want our nation to be prosperous, and I promise we're going to work to bring about prosperity in the nation. Now, this was actually, this slogan was not something that he said, but it described what his campaign promises were, what he ran his campaign on. And rather, hang on just a second. Oh, it was used in a campaign advertisement published by the Republican Party. But less than a year after he took office, there was the stock market crash of 1929, which brought in the Great Depression. And it was the longest and deepest period of economic decline in the 20th century. See, he either lied when he made that promise or there were unseen circumstances, unforeseen circumstances that kept him from making that promise. But that promise, the exact opposite, is what happened. Okay, then in 1964, Lyndon B. Johnson made this promise. We are not about to send American boys nine or 10,000 miles away from home to do what Asian boys ought to be doing for themselves. That's a quote. Okay, then violence escalated, and he was unable to keep that promise. And as we know, many American boys were sent to Vietnam to fight that war. In 1968, Richard Nixon kind of continues this promise, and his campaign was his pledge to end the war in Vietnam. And, wow. And there were even reports that he had a secret plan on how he was going to end the war without the United States being perceived as the losing side. But instead, what happened was Nixon continued to press American forces into Vietnam, 
and it resulted in an increased number of combat deaths within the first six months that he assumed office. So again, either these campaign promises were made and never intended to be kept, they were only made in order to get into office, or they were made and then circumstances prevented them from being kept. When George H.W. Bush ran for office, he was especially adamant about one thing, read my lips, no new taxes. That was his big thing. And as you might have guessed, there were indeed new taxes. Unfortunately, when he took office, Bush inherited a national deficit from the previous administration, and with Congress controlling the opposition, had to raise taxes. Interestingly enough, Clinton used that very campaign slogan of uh, Bush's when he ran against him for the presidency, um, and it was devastating for Bush. Like, he used that against him, that he had made this promise and not kept it, and ultimately won the campaign based on that. And then, ironically, Clinton was impeached by the House of Representatives for lying under oath. And so you can see how convoluted a lot of the campaign promises get. A promise is only as good as the promiser. And sometimes the promiser never intends to keep the campaign promise they make. We call that a lie. And sometimes they don't have the power to keep the promises that they make. We call that an underestimation. And sometimes they're unable to keep promises because circumstances change, and that promise they made is no longer the best thing. And so they're unable to keep that promise. Uh, promise. And sometimes they're unable to keep it because the opposing party controls Congress and they can't get them to work, they can't all work together to come to an agreement. And this is related, although it's a bit of a tangent, but I think it's important. Um, as I was doing some research, one of the things I read said that the surge in partisanship and the division that it created in the years since George H.W. Bush I mean, George W. Bush and Barack Obama took office, has also made manipulation of voters easier. And this is a quote. It says, you have this level of emotional fervor at work that not only affects people's opinions, but it's also gotten to the point that it affects their perception of reality. And that's a quote by Robert Shapiro, a political scientist at Columbia University. He goes on to say, so when Trump makes claims about the behavior of immigrants, it's information that's consistent with the opinions that his supporters have about immigration. Now that's a very general statement. Obviously not all of Trump's supporters have negative images of immigrants, but just in general, he's saying something that he knows they already believe. He's manipulating what he knows that they want. Here's another example. This is a quote from a political speech made in another time. Today, Christianity stands at the head of our country, and I pledge that I will never tie myself to those who want to destroy Christianity. We want to fill our culture with this Christian spirit. We want to get rid of all the recent immoral development in literature and in theater and in arts and in the press. We want to burn out the poison of immorality which has entered into our lives and our culture. 
Here's what one listener of that speech said. This puts into words everything I have been searching for for years. It is the first time someone gave form to what I long for. See, these words sound like they're about faith, and they sound like they're about morality, and they sound like they're about the Christian spirit. And they are what we call stated beliefs. But the words actually cloak and deceive so that those in the audience hear what they long for, but what is not true. The words are those of Adolf Hitler. And what is about to actually happen is the result of what we call governing beliefs. So stated beliefs versus governing beliefs. What we say versus what actually is going to take place. And what is coming in this instance is the Holocaust, where millions of people are murdered, including Jews, gypsies, people with disabilities, homosexuals, Jehovah's Witnesses, and the list goes on and on. The words were said because the audience and their longings were known and understood. And the speaker or the writer used those longings to manipulate the audience. And that information is from a video by Dr. Diane Langberg, and it's from a presentation she did at the Conference of American Association of Christian Counselors in Nashville, Tennessee in 2015, and that's called Culture, Christendom, and Christ. And I would urge you to go listen to that if you haven't. It's pretty short. It's only about 20 or 25 minutes, but it's really important. Yes, it's called Culture, Christendom, and Christ. And if you Google that, or if you just Google Dr. Diane Langberg, it should come up. And if you have any trouble with that, you can text me and I'll send you a link for it. So we need to be aware of what it is we want to hear so that we can recognize where we're exposed to manipulation. Okay? Not that if someone says what we want to hear, we are being manipulated, but we need to be aware that we're exposed to it at that point, and we need to evaluate whether or not that's what's happening. And then there are some positive examples, and I came across uh, one of uh, campaign promises that were kept, and it was President Jimmy Carter. He said, I will never tell a lie to the American people, and he kept that promise. He won the Nobel Peace Prize after leaving office, and he's been widely praised for his humanitarian efforts. But not everyone respected his honesty and integrity. He went down as a president that really didn't have a very positive effect on our country. And Meg Mott, professor of political theory at Marlboro College in Vermont, said he was too noble, too pure. He didn't know how to play people against each other. He should have read his Machiavelli. <laughs> See, people don't always appreciate when you are honest and when you fulfill your promises. But God is a good promiser, and God keeps his promises. Romans 8, 31 and 32 says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, 
how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Now, I want you to stay with me here because I'm going to take you on a little bit of a backtrack to talk about how God is for us. And I'm going to use the example of Abraham. God promises to Abraham in Genesis 12, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who curses you I will curse, and in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed." In chapter 17, it goes on to say, You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. But then God does this very peculiar thing after he makes this promise. He gives Abraham a son... But then he asks him to sacrifice that son. Now let's think about that for a minute from Abraham's perspective. You promise me that you will make me a great nation, the father of many nations, and that I will be fruitful. My wife has been unable to have children, not for years, but for decades. But I believe you, and God delivers. When I am 100 and Sarah is 91, well past childbearing years in the best of circumstances, you give us our promised son Isaac. You did what you said you would do. Now you ask me to sacrifice Isaac, my beloved son that I have waited my entire life for. How are you going to fulfill your promise of making me fruitful and making me a great nation if you take away the one offspring that I have with Sarah. I have no idea, but I know you to be a God who keeps your promises, so I will obey. In Romans 4, and I'm reading from the message this time, starting in verse 18, it says this, We called Abraham father, not because he got God's attention by living like a saint, but because God made something out of Abraham when he was a nobody. Isn't that what God does for us? He makes something out of us when we are nobodies. Isn't that what we've always read in Scripture, God saying to Abraham, I set you up as father of many peoples? Abraham was first named father and then became a father because he dared to trust God to do what only God could do, raise the dead to life, with a word make something out of nothing. When everything was hopeless, Abraham believed anyway, deciding to live not on the basis of what he saw he couldn't do, but on what God said he would do. And so he was made father of a multitude of peoples. God himself said to him, you're going to have a big family, Abraham, Abraham didn't focus on his own impotence and say it's hopeless. This hundred-year-old body could never father a child. Nor did he survey Sarah's decades of infertility and give up. He didn't tiptoe around God's promise, asking cautiously skeptical questions. Again, isn't that what we want to do? 
We want to ask God very skeptical questions about how he's going to do this and if this is going to be possible. He plunged into the promise and came up strong, ready for God, sure that God would make good on what he had said. The NIV says, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. See, God has the power to do what he has promised to do. That's why it is said Abraham was declared fit before God by trusting God to set him right. But it's not just Abraham, it's also us. The same thing gets said about us when we embrace and believe the one who brought Jesus to life when the conditions were equally hopeless. The sacrifice Jesus made us fit for God, set us right with God. Now watch this carefully. Abraham trusted that God would be faithful to his promise and that God had the power to fulfill his promise. That resulted in Abraham being obedient, being willing to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. And when he goes to offer Isaac, God stops him and does not let him go through with that. However, what we see is that God in return shows himself faithful to Abraham and the promise he made him measure for measure and more. When it came down to God sacrificing his son, he did not stop. God went through with it. We can trust God when he acts asks us to obey him because he goes above and beyond anything he asks us to do and he keeps his promises. Romans 8.32 also says, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? In other words, if God gave us the very best in giving us his son Jesus, Why would he not continue keeping his promises? God is for us. He was there at our birth. We bear his image. We are his kids. Verse 14 says that. Look what he did for us through Jesus. This is good news. God is on our side. God is for us. And then it goes on, Romans 8, 33 through 39, and tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. See, because God keeps his promises, and since it's God who acted for us, the gift of salvation is final and absolute. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Now let's go back to politics. Government is man-made and promises more than it can ever deliver. Government is simply about representation. And sometimes those representatives deliver, but most of the time they don't. Sometimes they keep their promises and sometimes they don't. So a few things to consider with campaign promises. One, just being thoughtful 
and realistic about those promises is a big part of the solution. You can't just look at platforms and slogans and say, this is what I want. You've got to go a little further than that. In 1 John 4, it talks about testing the spirits, and that's kind of what this reminds me of, is you've got to test the promise, and you've got to look past it and evaluate the ability of the promiser to keep the promise. Because making a promise means nothing. Keeping a promise means everything. So what is their past record? What roadblocks do you see that the system creates that would keep them from fulfilling that promise? What circumstances might change that would keep them from fulfilling that promise? And ultimately, is that promise they're making the reason that you're throwing your support to them? Because if it is, and if it's not, if they're not able to keep that promise, then what's going to happen the rest of the time that they're in office? Number two, if you can find this information, and it's difficult to find, but there are some things you can find out about it. Who are their big contributors, and what do those contributors support? Okay, because that's going to tell you about how to evaluate the promises that they make. Fact check the information they give. One of the sites that I found is called PolitiFact, and it's been around for quite a while. And it's one that you can go to, and it will um, have the facts about certain things that are said in, by specific candidates and tell you whether or not that's true, false, or maybe partially true. And then you need to know what do you long to hear? What is it you really, really want? So that you can guard against being manipulated with that. And then finally, and to me this is the most important thing, we've got to remember that our hope is not in government and politics. Our hope is in God and the gospel. And hope is not a wish. Hope is confident expectation that something will happen. Verses 22 through 25 in chapter 8 tell us that since the Spirit is working the world, I cannot speak. Since the Spirit is at work in the world to bring about a radical renewal of all creation, there is genuine hope for the future. There's going to be radical renewal from top to bottom. And we have every hope. We can confidently expect the promises in Romans chapter 8. And I'm going to go back to the beginning of that chapter. We can confidently expect there will be no condemnation for those in Christ. We can confidently expect that we will be raised to life with Christ. We can confidently expect that the Spirit will help us in our weakness and will pray for us. We can confidently expect that Christ is at the right hand of God interceding for us. We can confidently expect that all things will work for good for those who love Him. We can confidently expect that God is for us. And we can confidently expect that nothing can separate us from God. All these promises and more will come true because a promise is only as good as the promiser and God is a faithful promiser. 
What I'm going to do right now is I'm going to ask you to get into groups of really no more than five, six at the most. And I'm going to give you a few questions to go over, and I'll tell you what they are real quick. The first one is, what promises in Romans 8 are especially meaningful to you and why? The second, you don't have to write them down. I'm going to give a little slip to somebody in the group. What are some scriptures that remind us of what we hope for? See, I think this is really important because I think that we need, when we start feeling hopeless about anything, whether it's politics or whether it's our next step in life or whether it's if we're ever going to get married or whether it's if we're ever going to be able to have a nice house, whatever it is, we need hope that things are going to change. And not that we're going to get all those things, but we're going to get what God says is good because he defines good. And so what are some scriptures that remind us that God is going to give us what is good for us and that uh, we can put our hope in? And then the third one is to pray for your group, pray for Denton North, pray for the city of Denton, and pray for our government. So I'm going to encourage you to do several things. One is make sure you look around and, and that everybody around you is in a group. And if they're not, invite them to join yours or go be in a group with them. That's one of the first big things. The second one is send someone from your group to me, and I'll give you a list of those three things. And then the third one is your group decide how you want to spend your time. So like if you're looking at those three things and you're like, praying together is the most important thing for us to do right now. Then pray together. Don't feel like you have to go through one, two, three, and do them all. Start with prayer. And then if you have time left, go to the next one that you feel like is most important for your group. Okay? And so um, I'm probably going to give you about 15 minutes to do that in your group. And then I'll bring us back together. Okay? So go ahead and split into groups. Send one person to get questions from me. So in thinking through um, what I wanted my points to be for this sermon, I had a really hard time coming up with a logical, here are my points. But if there's one thing that I want you to remember and take away from this, it's that God is a faithful promise maker, and because of that, we have hope. If God is a, God is a faithful promise maker, and because of that, we have hope. If you don't remember anything else, I hope that you'll remember that. You know, communion or the Lord's Supper is about bringing people together who would never sit together in a room or sit together and have fellowship at table, so to speak. And all sorts of humanity live in the presence of God at the Lord's Supper, at the table that he spreads for us. And politically speaking, that includes Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, Independents, everybody in the spectrum can sit together at the table of our God. Because we are trying to live out God's gospel in the real world, and we're real people, and sometimes that gets messy. And of course, we're going to step on each other's toes sometimes trying to figure that out and live that out. But no matter what our difference is, and no matter how messy it gets, we're united in Christ. 
And Christ is the basis on which we take communion together. He is our unifying factor. So as we remember Jesus, taking communion reminds us of the hope we have for ourselves, the hope we have for our neighborhood, the hope we have for our city, the hope we have for our country, the hope we have for our world. And it reminds us of the good news that God is for us and sent Jesus to save us and that he is faithful to his promise. And so as we take communion together today, I want you to do something that exemplifies your being unified through Christ to the people around you. Maybe that's just a hug to somebody that you haven't talked to in a while. Maybe that's going and telling somebody what one of your verses your group came up with that speaks hope. I don't know what that is for you. But if we don't unify around the table of God, there's no other place we're going to unify. And if we don't unify around the table of God, then I have to question if we're serious about following God. And so it's time to set our differences aside. It's time to set our um, differences of opinion and how the gospel should be lived out aside and just focus on our unity in Christ. So let's pray together, and then we're going to go and um, take communion. And then if you'll come back to your seats pretty quick, um, we have some songs that we're going to finish out with today. God, I thank you that you are a faithful promiser. I thank you that when you say something, we can rest assured that it will be done, that we don't have to understand why it doesn't look like we thought it would look, that we don't have to understand how it's going to happen, that all we have to do is believe that you are who you say you are and you're going to do what you say you're going to do. You've given us example after example after example of faithfulness throughout your word and throughout the story there, and you've given us the example of your faithfulness in giving us Christ. I pray, God, that Christ would unite us as we take communion together, that he would unite us in our belief that he is Lord, that he would unite us in our belief that he too is a promise keeper. And God, I pray that the power of your Holy Spirit living in us would transform us to be promise keepers as well, God, that we would also be true to our word and that we would also keep promises that we make. We love you so much for the tender care that you give us, for the salvation that you've offered us, and for just being who you are, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.